Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. All right, so we're getting into Revelation 7 today, and we've got a ton of families out traveling for Memorial Day, so if you guys are watching online, we miss you guys. Uh, We're going to unpack chapter 7 today, the first eight verses, and as a quick reminder, uh, this is the only book of the Bible that has a promise to those that read it and study it. It's also the only book that has a divine outline. It's the only book that culminates all things, unveiling who is Jesus. And we're going to see him today, who he is in sealing and protecting those that serve him and the safety that we have in persecution as a result. Okay, so the sequence, remember Jesus has to come in forward and take the scroll before all of this happens. Uh, Before that happens, the elders are in heaven. And before that Before Jesus takes the scroll, the elders are in heaven, and then all of this stuff happens. So we're diving into the the little break between the sixth and seventh seal of Revelation chapter 7. So just don't forget that sequence. We're going to remind you guys of that every week. Okay, so we're here in the break between between, uh, the sixth and seventh seal, so it's a whole chapter this time, chapter 7. And there's really two parts to it, the first eight verses and then the last nine or ten verses. And it's the sealing of the 144,000. So all of this bad stuff has happened. Now, the question is, does the sealing happen before the going forth and, and the loosing of the seals? Or does it happen in the middle of this? This is kind of a little break where God describes something that's going on during this period. So where it falls in the timeline, we're a little uncertain. But we're just going to read it and know that at some point during this time, God is going forward and sealing 144,000 evangelists from the 12 tribes of Israel, from 12 of the tribes of Israel, I should say. There's really 14, and we're going to look at that. But he's going to seal them, and they're going to go out, and the back half of chapter 7 is the fruit, in large part, due to their ministry all over the world. And so we're here in that little break. Where it happens, we're a little unsure, but But God does say, he starts off with, and after these things. So it could be directly after the sixth seal. Um, It could be a hearken back to the front of the seals before Jesus starts to take them off, because it starts off with, and after these things. So it could be somewhere in between there. We'll leave that to the Holy Spirit to teach us. But after we get through chapter 7, the seventh seal will open up the seven trumpets. Okay, and then we'll have the six trumpets, and then there's a break for four chapters between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, and then that opens up the seven bowls, and the break between the sixth and the seventh is one verse that time. It's something that Jesus says, so we'll look at that when we get there. Okay, chapter seven, it's really broken into two sections. Verses one through eight are the sealing of the 144,000 from 12 tribes of Israel, and very deliberate not to say the 12 tribes, because there's actually more than 12 tribes. There's 14 And we're going to look at that, but from 12 of the tribes of Israel. And then the back half of it, verses 9 through 17, detail the fruit of salvation during 
the tribulation, and it's a great multitude. So we're going to look at part one today and then break it out the next part next week. Okay, so in chapter 7, verse 1, And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. So the word corners here is genoia, and it literally means an internal corner or a secret place. And it can be used with the number four to denote the entirety. So it's the four corners of the world as in, you hear that saying a lot, people come from the four corners of the earth to see the Great Pyramids, for example, or uh, the Smithsonian Museum, or the Eiffel Tower, or all these different things. It's kind of a figure of speech to mean the entirety of the earth. So these angels are at the standing back at the entirety of the earth, holding back the wind. And we see it used later in Revelation chapter 20, verse 8, and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth. So it's the same word, but there it's translated quarters, not corners, meaning the four sections of the earth, if you were to parse the earth into four quadrants, per se. Uh, But it's interesting that there also happen to be four magnetic corners of the earth. And so we can't dive into the book without some kind of a science lesson, right? The, uh, the, magnet, the magnetic field around the earth is generated from the, the molten metal within the core of the earth. And there's liquid metal on the outside. It's basically like a, a globe that's spinning on the inside, this nickel and iron. And when you study it, there actually are four corners magnetically of the earth. So God could be fig- literally correct as well in the four corners of the earth. But needless to say, they are encompassing the whole earth and holding back the wind. So pretty amazing. And the angels are holding the four winds that it should not blow. Okay, the four winds. Now, as someone that grew up in Oklahoma, I've spent the the most part of my life in the state of Oklahoma. I cannot imagine a day where the wind is not blowing. And it's hard to, it's kind of hard to grasp the going outside and being in the calmness with no wind blowing. But to me, it seems to be the calm before the storm, right? It's kind of that silence of, okay, something is coming. And I, I got to experience this. I hope most of you probably did on Thursday night when that huge storm came through. When it was over, I went outside to go run an errand real quick, and it was completely orange. The atmosphere was totally orange, and there was not a a slight breeze even to be felt. It was, the, it was very eerie. And I was sitting there outside thinking, this must be exactly what it's going to feel like in this moment, where it's totally calm, totally silent. The atmosphere is weird as all get out. And we saw that back in the sixth seal with the, the moon and the sun and all kinds of weird things are going to happen. But going outside, you just got that feeling of, okay, something else is about to happen is what it felt like. And fortunately for us, it didn't, but that's the, kind of what it felt like. And the Holy Spirit goes out of the way to make sure you do not confuse this as something other than actual wind. Because look what he says. He references the sea and the trees as two things typically impacted by wind. But he goes in and says that the wind should not blow on the earth, the sea, or the trees. So he's got three things just to give you a hint that, hey, he's talking about actual wind here, not an idiom for something. Okay, in verse 2. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. Now, it's interesting that 
you know, Jesus in the gospel says the sign of the Son of Man coming will be out of the east. He talks about that a lot, out of the east. When he rode in on the donkey to Jerusalem, it was through the east gate. And so he has a, a tendency throughout the word of God to denote him coming from the east. Uh, so that this could be a very deliberate place that he's talking about, this angel ascending from the east. But this angel has the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea. So it's given to them to hurt it, but they're not yet. Because they said, wait until I finish sealing my servants. So God's holding back the judgment, waiting for his people to be sealed before he unleashes these four angels. Saying, hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And so hold on. Basically, the judgment is, wait, we've got to seal these people before you go forward and do these really terrible things on the earth. Now, you see this kind of throughout the Bible, too, the type of this. Uh, Lot, remember Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah? Then in that case, the angels came and said, we have to get you out of here before the judgment happens. In other words, we cannot rain fire on Sodom and Gomorrah until you are removed with your family. Okay, it's a type of us. We've got to be removed before God rains this judgment down on this earth. So you see this throughout the Bible. In this case, these people are going to have to go through the tribulation, but they're sealed and protected. Much like with the flood, we had Enoch removed before the flood, Noah and his family sealed and protected through the flood. So it's two groups of people, same concept. Enoch was removed, the church is going to be removed, and then there's a, some Jewish believers that are sealed throughout the tribulation. So the seal of the living God, this goes all the way back to Ezekiel chapter 9, and this is amazing. So when you go to Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 1, it says, He cried also in mine ears with a loud voice, saying, Cause them that have charge over the city to draw near, even every man with his destroying weapon in his hand. Now, he's talking about angels here. And throughout the Old Testament, you see angels referenced as man a lot. Uh, remember, Jesus and two men showed up with Abram and Sarai when they met with them before Sodom and Gomorrah. And they had the Passover offer, the, the friendship, the fellowship meal offering there by the tree. Uh, you see angels show up as men a lot. Same in Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember the men came to Lot's house and knocked on the door and they were the angels? Okay, these are the angels. And they have charge over the city. Now you see this a lot too. In, in Daniel you see it a lot where there are principalities and powers, angelic beings that have charge over nations. And there was a, an angel that was in charge of Persia. And remember the good angel Gabriel had to fight through him to get to Daniel and then he said, I must go, for I must fight the prince of the power of Grecia next. And Greece was not even a world power at that time, but it was a power, a nation on the rise. And so you see, cause them that have charge over the city to draw near, even every man with his destroying weapons. So they have some type of technology here these angels are carrying that they are ready to destroy the city. But first, something must happen. And behold, six men came from the way of the higher gate, which lieth toward the north, and every man a slaughter weapon in his hand. And one man among them was clothed in linen, with a rider's inkhorn by his side. 
and they went in and stood beside the brazen altar. See, first of all, too, judgment always starts at the house of God. Uh, the New Testament talks a lot about that, but you see that a lot in the Old Testament, that judgment always starts at the house of God, which is why Israel's judged first and then Babylon, which is why that whole pattern goes throughout the Bible, that he judges there first and then so there at the brazen altar, these six men, okay, and every man of slaughter heaven, and one man among them was clothed with linen. So it makes me think that there's six total, and one of them is clothed with linen with this ink horn. And the glory of the God of Israel was gone up from the cherub, whereupon he was, to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed with linen, which had the writer's ink horn by his side. So the glory of God in the Old Testament right here, this is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the glory of God had gone up, and he's calling to the man clothed with linen. So what does he say? Go ahead, A.G. Okay, and the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. Okay, the word mark here is tav, and it literally means a desire or mark as an exemption from judgment, and it's often depicted as a cross. And so here you have the Holy Spirit calling to a man clothed in linen, saying, go forward and set a cross on the forehead of all of those that follow the God of Israel. And so he's going forward, and he starts supernaturally sealing them one by one, with a cross. And to the others he said in mine hearing, go ye after him through the city and smite. Let not your eyes spare, neither have ye pity. Slay utterly old and young, both maids and little children and women. But come not near any man upon whom is the mark, or the cross. So, the mark. And begin at my sanctuary. Again, remember, judgment starts at the house of God. So begin at my sanctuary. Then they began at the ancient men which were before the house. Okay, the point that you need to get there is nobody is exempt from the judgment of God, no matter if you're old, young, small, whatever. If you're not in Jesus, then you are, you are at risk. And the man clothed in linen is going forward and sealing one by one. Now, it gets into... There's a concept in the Bible called the age of accountability, and you see that a lot through the wilderness wanderings. In the wilderness wanderings, it was the age of 20 was the age of accountability. If you were below that, you were exempt, and you would go to heaven. You see David talk about that when he loses his baby. You know, he cries and he weeps while he's still alive, but then after the son passes on, he gets up and goes about his business, and the people say, hey, what are you doing? Why are you not still crying? He says, all of my weeping can bring him not to me, but I will eventually go to him. So he knew he was in heaven, and there is a, that concept uh, goes from cover to cover in the Bible, the age of accountability, but here people are being marked, and in the lower right-hand corner, there's an excerpt from a lexicon, a dictionary, and what I love is that, just look at the very first, the very top third line down, Ezekiel 9.4, a sign in the form of a cross branded on the thigh or neck of horses and camels. So even they in, in Arab, in the Arab culture, really, they knew that this meant, the Tav meant a cross. And so you can just think about this, this man clothed in linen going forward and sealing 
the servants of the God of Israel. So who is this man clothed in linen, sealing believers in Ezekiel? Well, the same man clothed in linen shows up in Daniel, and of all things, he's walking on water. You know, that should sound familiar to all of us. But in Daniel 12, 6, and one said to the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, how long shall it be to the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever, that it shall be for a time, times, and a half. Now, this is one of the verses where we get that the back half of the tribulation is three and a half years. It's time, times as a dual, in other words, two, and a half being half. So you have one plus two plus a half, so three and a half. And when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, as in Israel, all these things shall be finished. So here we have the man clothed in linen, walking on water, which should sound very, very familiar to us that are familiar with the New Testament when Jesus is walking on water and coming to the boat. So could this be the same man wrapped in linen? It's interesting, when you track this thread down throughout the Bible, a man clothed in linen eventually becomes the man wrapped in linen as he died for us. It's Matthew 27. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. And the same linen that was left behind as a testimony along with the napkin separately in John 20. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulcher and seeth the linen clothes lie and the napkin that was about his head, so the napkin wrapped around Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Now, I mentioned this a few months ago, but what's interesting about that, I didn't learn this until recently, but in the Jewish culture, when you leave, if you take the napkin and you fold it neatly and you lay it on the table, it's a sign that you're coming back. If you take the napkin and you wad it up and throw it away, it was a sign that you didn't like the dinner and you won't be back. And so even in the Jewish culture, Jesus is telling them, hey, I'm coming back because I'm folding the napkin and I'm laying it here. So he, he's resurrected. He takes the linen he was clothed in. He folds it up. He lays it in the tomb. He lays the napkin separately. And it's all a sign of a testimony that, hey, I am coming back. Just wait. I'm coming back. So we see this man clothed in linen sealing the servants. He's walking on water in Daniel. He folds the linen in John and Matthew, and he's going to come back draped in white apparel in Revelation 19. So the 144,000 that are sealed, it's a, the concept is throughout the Bible. It's pretty amazing. So chapter 7, verse 4, and I heard the number of them which were sealed. Now here's the list. Okay, we have 12 tribes of Israel, 12,000 from each tribe from each of, the, of these specific 12 tribes. Okay, and then the, there were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Of the tribe of Judah were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Gad were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Asher were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Naphtali were sealed 12,000. Manasseh, 12,000. Simeon, 12,000. Levi, 12,000. Issachar, 12,000, Zebulun, 12,000, and Joseph, 12,000, and then finally Benjamin, 12,000. So we have the, the list of the children of Israel here of 12 of the 14 tribes. So the 12 tribes of Israel, 
know, when Joseph went down to Egypt, he has two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And then when Jacob, who is later named Israel, comes down, he adopts Manasseh and Ephraim. So you really have a list of 14 people that the Holy Spirit uses throughout the Bible to denote generically the 12 tribes. Okay, so you have 14 names that he picks from. And when you look on the family tree, you have Abraham, Isaac, and Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. Jacob is renamed Israel, and then he has the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 sons of Israel, and each of them by a different wife or maiden. Leah had Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Rachel had Joseph and Benjamin, Bilhah had Dan and Naphtali, and Zilpha had Gad and Asher. So you have those 12 core names. Now, like I said, when Jacob goes down, he adopts Manasseh and Ephraim. So Joseph is really denoted by Manasseh and Ephraim a lot. It's the combination of those two equal Joseph. But the list of these 12 tribes is all throughout the Bible, and they're always in a different order. Always there's somebody left out for a reason. And your challenge is to go through the Bible and figure out what is the Holy Spirit, what message is the Holy Spirit giving you by who he lists and who he leaves out. It's deliberate. It's very deliberate on who he has listed each time. I think they're listed, if I remember right, somewhere around 29 times in the Bible. And so here in chapter 7, we've got the following names. Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. So you have these 12 names in a very specific order. Now, when you have a filter of, hey, the entire Bible speaks of Jesus, the question is, how does it speak of Jesus? And he's on every page of the Bible. And I haven't talked about this a ton in New City Church, but in the past, I've gone through a, a Bible study series that we do called Jesus in the Old Testament. And it's just looking at where does Jesus show up in the Old Testament throughout the Bible. He is on every single page. The question is, how do you find him? And where does he show up? You know, when you finally come to, to grips with that, it will radically change the way you study the Bible. And this is exactly what Jesus means in Psalms 40, verse 7, when he says, Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me. In other words, the entire Bible speaks of Jesus somehow. The question is, how does it? How does the entire Bible speak of Jesus? And in Proverbs 25, 2, one of our favorite verses, it's the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. So Jesus is concealed or hidden on every page, and it's our honor as kings and priests to him to go search out and search the scriptures daily to find how does it link to Jesus? Where in this, where in this passage can we find Jesus? And sometimes it's very deliberate. Sometimes it's very open. Sometimes you've got to dig for it. Sometimes it's in a type or a model. And in Psalms 138.2, look what God says. I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all your name, above all thy name. So the word of God, what we hold right here in our hands today that we take so lightly, God holds this above his very name, which is pretty heavy. If you pay attention in the Bible, he holds his name in very high regard. And so it's amazing that he holds his word even above it. Now, why is that? Well, because we're saved by his word. 
Jesus is the Word. Remember John 1, 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, or tabernacled amongst us, which when you study the tabernacle, speak of Jesus on every page, the entire tabernacle speaks of Jesus. He laid claim on every artifact in it. You know, there was the table of the showbread, and he said, I am the bread of life. And there was the menorah, the candlestick, not menorah, that's for Hanukkah, but the, the 12-branch candlestick. He said, I am the light of the world. There was one door in, and he said, I am the door. You know, he links to every, every part of the tabernacle. And so when you, when you have that filter, you'll read the Old Testament, and you'll never be the same because Jesus is literally verse by verse throughout it. He even claims this in the New Testament, John 1, chapter 1, verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. See, in the New Testament, they were looking for a man that met every requirement in the Old Testament. They were looking for him, and Philip and Nathaniel knew it's who Moses wrote about in the law and the prophets. So, in other words, the entire Old Testament, they were looking for this man that, that met all of these requirements. Galatians 4.4, 4, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law. So Jesus was made under the law. He was made according to it. In other words, to fulfill it because he fulfilled it on our behalf. In Hebrews 10, 7, he actually quotes Psalms 40, verse 7. Then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. And so it's again, it's a quote in Hebrews, harking all the way back to Psalms 40, verse 7. Jesus says it himself in John 5, 39. You search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. So there are all these hypocritical rabbis and Pharisees and Sadducees and people that they thought they had eternal life just by reading the Bible. And Jesus is saying, no, you have eternal life because of me, and all of these things you're reading testify of me. The whole Old Testament testifies of me. In John 5, 45, do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is, only, there is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Okay, when you read the five books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy, you know, the name Jesus doesn't really show up, but he's there constantly when you start studying this. He is there all the time. Okay, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? In Matthew 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets, I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one yacht or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. In other words, he didn't come to wipe out the Old Testament. He came to fulfill it for us, to have fellowship, to be the redeeming king on our behalf that the entire Old Testament speaks about. All the way from Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, and you follow that thread all the way throughout the Old Testament to the lineage of David, to the root of Jesse, to all of this. It all speaks of Jesus, the whole thing. Now, Jesus says something that you know, we tend to miss in English a lot because a lot of us aren't familiar with Hebrew. But he says, one yacht or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. So a yacht in the Hebrew language, it's like this little bitty apostrophe 
So it's the very, it's the very specific structure of the text, okay? And it's on the left-hand side of that graphic. The tittle is a little extension. It makes the resh turn into a daleth. And so it's that little tiny extension between those two letters that that's the tittle. So Jesus is saying the very specificity of the text speaks of me, and I'm going to fulfill every single bit of it. It's there. It's deliberate. He gave it to Moses letter by letter, space by space, and he's going to fulfill it. And the rabbis even say that he'll interpret the spaces between the letters when he comes back. And you could get into a whole thing there with um, Bible codes and how the, the structure of the language mathematically behind it, which is pretty fascinating, but it's deliberate. It's by God. So with that filter of, okay, Jesus is on every page, he, it, it links to him somehow. How would this list of these 12 names link to our Messiah? Somehow this has to link to him. So when you think about it, the, the problem we have is the names in our Bibles are transliterated, meaning how they sound, not what they mean. If they were translated, you would have a totally different list here. Because if the names are translated, then you get the meaning of the name, not just the, how it sounds and how to pronounce the name. So when you translate these names, this list... It says, praise the Lord, he has looked on my affliction and granted good fortune. Happy am I, my wrestling has made me forget my sorrow. God hears me, has joined me, purchased me, exalted me, adding to me the son of his right hand. And so there's a list of the very structure of what Jesus did on our behalf embedded in the ceiling of the 144,000 with the 12 tribes of Israel and you can track down what these names mean by going all the way back to the Old Testament and just looking at, you know, Benjamin, remember Jacob talks about the son of my right hand. That's what the name meant, is the son of my right hand. And you can take these names and this list and just do that throughout the Old Testament. Try to figure out what do the other lists mean? When God puts them in an order and he leaves people out, why? Why does he leave them out? He left out Dan for a specific reason. We're going to look at that in a minute. No, no offense, Dan. But he did leave the tribe of Dan out for a reason. And we're going to look at that. He also left out Ephraim. Where's Ephraim? So we're going to look at that in a second. But it's amazing to me when you really get behind the text and you figure out what does God want you to really get out of this. You know, a lot of people think, hey, there's nothing for us from chapter 6 on because we won't be here as the church. And yet that's true. But Jesus kept the word intact for us to get something out of it. And it's a blessing. He he promises a blessing on anyone that will study this book. So pretty amazing list here that the whole purpose of Jesus is found in that genealogy. So with that in mind, I couldn't help but throw this in here from Genesis 5. You get another genealogy. It's the first genealogy in the entire Bible from Adam to Noah. It's ten names. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. And so you have this list here, and again, Jesus says somehow it's going to point to him. So if you translate the names to what they actually mean, you get a very, very special message. Adam means man. Seth is appointed. Remember when Eve had Seth, she said, God hath appointed me another son. Okay, Enosh is mortal. Kenan is sorrow. Mahalalel is the blessed God. Jared shall come down. Enoch teaching. Methuselah, his death shall bring. Methuselah, there was an old prophecy, we don't find it in the Bible, but the Jews talk about it a lot, 
that the day Methuselah or the year Methuselah died, the flood would come upon the earth. And surely it did. When you track the genealogies in Genesis, the year Methuselah died is the same year the flood came upon the earth. He lived to be 969 years old. It shows the long suffering of God. He's the longest lifehood in the Bible. And it's, it, it's deliberate because God is long suffering. He's waiting to bring that judgment. And he waits until the oldest person in the Bible dies. So it's a form of grace. Uh, Lamech, the despairing. And Noah means comfort or rest. And so you have man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down, teaching that his death shall bring the despairing comfort or rest. And it's amazing, even in the very first genealogy in the Bible, it talks about Jesus coming down to the earth to die on our behalf, to bring us what? Rest or comfort, which is pretty amazing, all the way back in Genesis 5. Okay, so who's missing from the tribes here in chapter 7? The tribe of Dan's not listed, neither is the tribe of Ephraim, and Ephraim is kind of there, but he's hidden a little bit, because remember, Joseph is the combination of Manasseh and Ephraim, but Manasseh and Joseph are both listed. So Joseph as the combination of Manasseh and Ephraim, if you have Manasseh and you have Joseph, really Joseph minus Manasseh would equal Ephraim, so, because it's the combination. So Joseph minus Manasseh equals Ephraim. So Ephraim's kind of there, but hidden. But the real question is, why is Dan not there? And when you kind of track through the Bible, sorry, Dan, when you track through the Bible, uh, you'll find that the Holy Spirit constantly has something against the tribe of Dan. He's, he's never in good standing with God. Uh, Jacob prophesied that he would be a serpent all the way back in Genesis 49, verse 17. Dan shall be a serpent, by the way, an adder in the path that biteth the horse heels so that his rider shall fall backward. So remember, at the very end of Jacob's life, he prophesies over his 12 sons. And this was the prophecy he teaches over Dan, that Dan would be a serpent. Now, if you know anything about the Bible at all, you know a serpent's not in good standing with the Lord. So Dan, clearly from the very beginning, the onset of the 12 tribes is not in good standing. Moses prophesied that he would leap from Bashan. Now, Bashan is a very evil place in the Old Testament. Bashan is where Og, the king of Bashan, came from. It's the one that the children of Israel battle. He's this gigantic king. His bedstead was 13 cubits long. And in Deuteronomy 33, Moses prophesied that Dan would leap from Bashan, and surely he does. Later on in Judges, he goes from Bashan up to the north on this kind of a sea-fearing uh, territory on the coast. Deborah, he left the allocated territories in Judges 18. Deborah says he remained in his ships. So remember, she prophesies in Judges chapter 5 that he would not help when they were under battle. And he, surely he did. He remained in his ships. He refused to help the tribes of Israel during a war. And so that's in Judges 5, 17. He's omitted from all the genealogies in 1 Chronicles 1 through 8. Dan's not there. He doesn't show up. And finally, we see here, all the way fast forward to the seven-year tribulation, he's not sealed. And so the Holy Spirit has something against Dan the entire time throughout the Bible. Now, the question is, why not Dan? Well, he's the tribe that, by which idolatry entered the land in Leviticus 24 and Judges 18. He was the tribe that was the leader in apostasy under Jeroboam in 1 Kings 12. 
He also happens again 100 years later in 2 Kings 10. He sets up a golden calf in the northern kingdom. So if you remember in Israel, they, they are one nation at first for a while. There's a monarchy, and then there's a rebellion. And they divide into the northern and southern kingdom. And the south remains faithful to God. It's through the lineage of David. And they're pretty stable for the most part. But the north, they go through a huge tumultuous they have these young kids ruling, and they die for you know, eight months later, and then another young one leads, and they are just, they go through a mess. They're the first ones to go into captivity. They're the first ones taken over. Dan is the very northern section of the northern kingdom, and the south is the other tribe that has the other golden calf. So they set up two golden calves that really bracket the northern kingdom. And so all of the people in the south that wanted to worship idols and the golden calf went north. And those in the north that wanted to stay, stay true and faithful to the living God went south. Okay, you see in, in Jeremiah, Amos, both books, Dan is the voice of calamity and curse. Now, in Deuteronomy 29, we see that an idolater's name is to be cursed. So Deuteronomy 29, the Lord will not spare him, but then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy shall, shall smoke against that man. And all the curses that are written in this book shall lie upon him, and the Lord shall blot out his name from under heaven. Okay, now he doesn't say he'll blot out his name from the Lamb's book of life. That's a different type of blotting that nobody wants to be a part of. He's blotting his name out from under heaven in terms, he's going to let that tribe perish. He's not going to seal them. He's going to let them fall by the wayside because they were very unfaithful to the God of Israel. Okay, he's going to blot his name out from under heaven, and the Lord shall separate him unto evil out of all the tribes of Israel. And surely that's exactly what happens to Dan all throughout the Old Testament. He is always separated and appointed to trials and tribulation according to all the curses of the covenant that are written in this book of the law. Okay, in Genesis 49, verse 16, Dan does have a future, though. He shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. That's literally what it says in Genesis 49, 16. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. The tribe of Dan, in Ezekiel 48, is the first tribe to inherit land in the millennium. So he does have a future, but it's going to be a very rough path to get there. Hopefully, hopefully nobody in here is of the tribe of Dan. <laughs> But Ezekiel 48, now these are the names of the tribes from the north end to the coast of the way of Hethlon, as one goeth to Hamath. Hazarin, the border of Damascus, northward to the coast of Hamath, for these are his sides, east and west, a portion for Dan. So when you read Ezekiel 48, it's all about divvying up the land in the millennium. It's all about the future of Israel during that time where David is resurrected to be a prince over the nation of Israel in that thousand-year reign. Jesus will rule and reign from Jerusalem while David, his prince, rules from Israel, rules over Israel, I should say. So pretty amazing that Dan does have a future. Okay, so that kind of wraps up the first part of chapter 7, the first eight verses on the ceiling of the 144,000. So if you're watching this online, if you're here today, if you do not know Jesus, and you want to make sure you are sealed for the day of redemption. That's what the Holy Spirit, when you get saved, it says in Ephesians, it is the earnest deposit in you. 
And so God is promising, it's just like when you buy a home, right? You put down earnest money. You promise to buy this home in the future. It's the same thing. That's where that language comes from, is from Ephesians, where God says the Holy Spirit is a earnest deposit in you that he is promising to purchase you out of this. So if you do not know Jesus and you want to make sure you're sealed, Thank you. I don't know what happened to the mic here. I think the battery died. Okay, you cannot walk with the Lord unless you reason with him. So you have to reason together, but to reason with him, you walk in agreement according to Amos 3.3. So walk in agreement. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. So God is saying, hey, if you'll just walk in agreement with me, I'll wipe all of this clean everything. I'll take care of it. I've already paid it. You just have to submit and humble yourself to me, and I'll take care of it. So pretty amazing. With that, we'll close in prayer. If you're watching online, you've got questions about salvation. If you've got questions on, if you just have prayer requests, if you have a need, if you have anything at all, we're here to help. There's our email address, newcitychurchokc at gmail.com. Give us a call. Send us an email. Somebody will get out, reach back out to you. And with that, I'll close us in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for the sealing that we have, that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit unto the day of redemption of our God, and that we are not appointed to wrath, that we get to rest in you, and that, Lord, we thank you that there is going to come a day when we hear our name called and we get to go home to forever be with you in a place of peace, a place of security, a place of comfort, a place of freely serving and working for you. Lord Jesus, what a beautiful day that will be. But God, until that time, if there are people here within the sound of our voice, there are people in this room, there are people online that need you, God, just have them pray this prayer with us. Lord, I am a sinner. You paid it all on my behalf. And Lord, all I have to do according to Romans 10.9 is to accept the gift and confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. And Lord, I confess that right now, that you are Lord and Savior, that you have wiped our sins clean. And Lord, I now want to walk in agreement with you and reason together and have a fellowship and relationship with you that I could not have otherwise. And so Lord, I'm giving my life over to you. Teach me and walk me through your words that I may grow in faith in serving you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you guys so much for coming this morning. Have a great weekend.